This episode of Voices in AI is brought to you by Austin-based design consultancy Argo Design that gave us visions of the future like the ambulance drone, Wire One, the Echo Fresh Fridge, and Amazon Bin. Argo is shaping and designing for the new computing paradigm being ushered in by artificial intelligence. Learn more about Argo at argodesign.com. This is Voices in AI, brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Rees. Today, our guest is Nick Bostrom. He's a Swedish philosopher at the University of Oxford, known for his work on superintelligence risk. He founded the Strategic Artificial Intelligence Research Center at Oxford, which he runs, and is currently uh, the founding director of the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford as well. He's the author of over 200 publications, including Superintelligence, Paths, Dangers, and Strategies, a New York Times bestseller. Welcome to the show, Nick. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's start, uh, let's jump right in. How do you see the future unfolding with regards to artificial intelligence? I think the transition to the machine intelligence era will be perhaps the most important thing that has ever happened um, in all of human history um, when it unfolds, but that there is considerable uncertainty as to the timescales. Ultimately, I think we will have full human-level general artificial intelligence, and shortly after that, probably superintelligence. And this transition to the machine superintelligence era, I think, has enormous potential to benefit humans in all areas, health, entertainment, the economy, um, space colonization, you name it. But that there might also be some risks, including existential risks associated with uh, creating, bringing into the world machines that are radically smarter than us. And so why do you think, I mean, it's a pretty bold claim when you look at Two facts. One, the state of technology today. I mean, I, we don't, you don't have any any indication that, you know, your, your smartphone is on a path to sapience, one. And two, the only human-level artificial intelligence we know of is human intelligence, right? And that is something coupled with consciousness and, and the human brain and the mind and all of that that... To say we don't understand it is, is, a, is an exercise in understatement. So how do you take those two things, that we have no precedent for this and we have no real knowledge of how human intelligence works, uh, how do you take that and then you come to this conclusion that, um, that, that this is all but inevitable? Well, it's certainly the case that we don't yet have um, human-level general artificial intelligence, let alone superintelligence, and we probably won't have in a while. But ultimately, it seems to be possible. I mean, we know from the existence of the human brain that that can exist systems that have at least human-level intelligence, and it's a finite uh, biological system. Three pounds of sort of squishy matter inside craniums can achieve this level of performance. There is no reason to think that's anywhere close to the maximum. And we can see several different paths by which we could technologically eventually get to the point where we can build this in machine substrate. So one would be, indeed, to reverse engineer the human brain, to figure out what architectures it uses, what learning algorithms, and then run that in in computer substrate. But it might well be that we will get there faster by adopting a purely synthetic approach. And... um, um, there just seems to be no particular barrier along this path that it would be in principle 
impossible to overcome. Um, it's a difficult problem, but we've only been hacking away at it since, I mean, we've only really had computers since just before the middle of the last century, and, and the field of AI is quite young, I mean, maybe since 1956 or so. Um, and in these few decades, we've already come a pretty long way. And uh, if we continue in this way, we will eventually, I think, figure out how to craft algorithms that have the same powerful learning and planning ability that makes us human smart. Well, let's, let's dig on that for just one more minute, and then let's move on accepting that assumption. But do you think, what, where do you think human consciousness comes from? Uh, the brain. But specifically, what, what mechanism gives rise to it? Like, what would even be a potential answer to that question? Well, so, I, I tend towards a computationalist view here, which is that, my guess is that it's the uh, running of a certain type of computation um, that would generate consciousness um, in the sense of morally relevant subjective experience. And that in principle, you could have consciousness implemented on structures built out of silicon atoms just as well as structures built out of carbon atoms. It's not the material that is the crucial thing here, but the structure of the computation being implemented. Um, now, so that means in principle, you could have machines being conscious. I do think, though, that the question of artificial intelligence, the intellectual performance of machines, is often best approached without also immediately introducing the question of consciousness. You could, even if you thought machines could not really be conscious, that you could still ask, uh, whether they will be very intelligent. And even if they were only intelligent but not conscious, that still could be a technology with enormous impacts on the world. So the last question I'll ask you along those lines, and then I, I would love to just dive down into some specifics of how you see all of this unfolding, is you're undoubtedly familiar with Searle's uh, thought experiment about the Chinese room, but I'll, I'll say it real briefly for the audience who may, who may not be on it, that, that there exists a person, hypothetically, um, who's in this in, enormously large room that's full of these uh, enormous number of these very special books. And the important thing to know about this man is he speaks no Chinese whatsoever, and yet people slide questions under the door to him written in Chinese. He uh, picks them up. He, he looks at the first character. He goes and finds the book with that on the spine. He turns, finds the second character. He follows all the way through the message until he gets to a book that says, write this down. He copies it. Again, he doesn't know what he's He's talking about color or coffee beans or what. And then he slides the answer back under the door, and somebody, a Chinese speaker, reads it, and it's just brilliant. I mean, it's like a perfect answer. And so the question is, you know, the analogy obviously is that that room, that system passes the Turing test splendidly, and yet it does so without understanding anything about what uh, it's talking about. And that this lack of understanding, this, this, this fact that it cannot understand something, is a really um, concrete limit to what it is able to do in, in the sense that it, it really can't think and understand in the way we do. Um, and, and that analogy is, of course, what a computer does. And so Searle uses it to conclude that a, that a computer can, can never really be like a human because it doesn't understand anything. How do you answer that? Well, I'm not very convinced about it, that's for sure. I mean, for a start, 
you need to think in this thought experiment not just about what the human inside this room can or cannot do or understands or doesn't understand, but you have to think about the system as a whole. So the room plus all these bugs in the room plus the human as an entity is able to map out inputs to outputs in, in a way that appears quite smart from the outside. So if anything has understanding here, it would presumably be the system. Just as you would say a, a computer program, it would be the entire thing, the computer and the program and its memory that would achieve a certain level of performance, not a particular data bus inside this device. Right. And um, the traditional answer to that, though, is, so, okay, the guy memorizes the content of every book. He's out walking around. Somebody hands him a note, and he writes a brilliant answer and hands it back. Again, he doesn't understand it. But you're, you're, you, yeah. you, you can't kind of well, go back to it's the system. So, well, so then you have to think about, realistically, if it's really that the function you want to capture is one that would map all possible English inputs to Chinese outputs, then that to, 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 to learn that mapping by just having a big lookup table would be infeasible just in terms of the number of entries. It certainly wouldn't fit into a human brain um, or indeed into any sort of physically confined, there wouldn't be enough atoms in the observable universe to, to implement it in that way. So, um, and so it might well be that um, understanding includes not just the ability to map a certain set of inputs to outputs, but to do that in a certain way that involves data compression. So that to understand something might be to uh, know what the relevant patterns are, the regularities in a particular domain, maybe to even have some kind of mental model of that domain and, and therefore achieve a compactification of this input-output mapping. And that allows you to generalize to, to things that were not explicitly listed in, in, in the initial set as well. And so one way of implementing this Chinese room argument, if we try to do it through a lookup table, well, A, it would be impossible because there just isn't enough memory and couldn't be. Uh, and, and B, even if you somehow magically could have enough memory, maybe it still wouldn't count as true understanding because it lacks this compression, the uh, extraction of regularities. So people who are um, concerned about a superintelligence broadly have three concerns, right? One is that it's misused deliberately by humans. The second one is that it's accidentally misused by humans. And the third one is that it somehow gets a will or volition of its own and has goals that are contrary to human goals. Do, are you concerned about all three of those or any one in particular? Or, or how, do you, how do you shake that, shake that out? Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I think there are challenges in each of these areas. I think that the, the, la the one you listed last, it is in a sense the first one. That is, we will need, by the time we figure out how to make machines truly smart, we will need to have figured out ways to align them with human goals and intentions so that we can get them to do what we want. Um, so right now you can define an objective function. In many cases, it's quite easy if you want to train some agent to play chess, you can define what good performance is. You get a one if you win a game and a zero if you lose a game and half a point perhaps if you make a draw. So that's an objective we can define. But in the real world, all things considered, we humans care, so care about things like happiness and justice and beauty and pleasure. None of those things are very easy to sort of sit down and type out 
a definition in C++ or, or Python. So you'd need to figure out the way to get potentially super intelligent agents to nevertheless serve as an extension of the human will so that they would realize what their intentions are and, and then be able to execute that faithfully. That's a big technical uh, research challenge that there are now groups bringing up and pursuing that technical research agenda. Now, assuming that we can solve that technical control problem, then we get the luxury of confronting these wider policy issues, like who should decide what this AI is used for, what social purposes should it be used for, how how do we want this future world with superintelligence to look like. Um, now, you need to ultimately, I think, be successful both on this narrow technical problem on and on these wider policy problems to really get a good outcome. Um, but I, I think they both they both seem kind of important and challenging. Like, like you divided the policy into two sub-problems. The, I think you distinguished between deliberate misuse and accidental misuse. I'm not sure precisely what you had in mind there, but it, it sounds like we want to make sure that neither of those happens. And so, if and is it your view that Look, any any existential threat to humanity is, uh, you know, kind of gets our attention. Is it your your view that there's a small chance, but and because but because it's such a big deal, we really need to think about this, or do you think there's an incredibly large chance that that's going to happen? Somewhere in between, I think there is enough of a chance, both that we will develop superintelligence, perhaps within the lifetime of people alive today, or some people alive today, and that things could go wrong, enough of a chance of that happening that it is a very wise investment of some research funding and some research talent to have some people in the world starting to uh, figure out the solution to this problem of scalable control, as is now starting to happen. And perhaps also to have some people thinking ahead about the policy um, questions, like how, what, what kind of global governance system could really cope with a world where there are super intelligent entities to, to appreciate that this is, this, this is a big, profound challenge, I think when you're talking about general superintelligence, you're not just talking about advances in AI, you're talking about advances in all technical fields. You really, I think, at that point, when you have AIs being better able to do research and science and innovation than we humans can do, then you have a kind of telescoping of the future so that all those other possible technologies that you could imagine the human species developing in the fullness of time. If we had 40,000 years to work on it, maybe we would have a, a cure for aging or uh, the ability to effectively colonize the galaxy or uploading into computers, all these kinds of science fiction-like technologies that we know are possible given the laws of physics, but just very hard to develop, that we could have developed in the fullness of time. All of those might be developed quite soon after you have superintelligence conducting this development at digital timescales. So you have, with this transition, potentially within short order, the arrival of something like technological maturity, where we have this whole suite of science fiction-like superpowers. And I think to construe a kind of governance system that works for that very different world will require some fundamental rethink. Um, and that's also some work that perhaps it makes sense to start in advance. And I think the the case for thinking that we should start that work in advance does not depend super sensitively on exactly how big you think the probability is 
that this will happen within a certain number of years. It seems that there is enough probability that it sure makes sense, if nothing else, as an insurance policy for, 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 for some, some humans to work on this. Do you think we're up to the challenge to rethink kind of these fundamental structures of society? Do you have any precedent in human history for some equivalent thing being done? Nothing very closely equivalent. You can still reach out and try to find some more distant analogies, perhaps in certain respects, the invention of nuclear weapons um, captures some, some, of, some, some, some parallels here. Uh, where there was the realization, uh, including amongst some of the nuclear physicists developing this, that it would really change the nature of international affairs. And, and people anticipated subsequent arms races and such. And, and there was some, some attempt to think ahead about that, how you could try to do anti-proliferation. Um, other than that, I don't think that humanity has a very great track record of thinking ahead about where it wants to go to, anticipating problems, and then taking proactive measures to avoid them. Like most of the time, we just stumble along, try different things, and, and gradually we learn. We learn that cars sometimes crash, so we invent seat belts and streetlights. Um, we figure out things as we we go along, but the, the the problem with existential risks is, is that you really only get one chance. So you've got to get it right on the first shot, and and that might require seeing the problem in advance and 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 avoiding it, and and that's that's what we are not very good at as, as a civilization, and, and hence need for I think like an extra effort there. Do you think, in terms of the pathway to building an AGI, that we're on an evolutionary path already? Like we, it's like, oh uh, yeah, you know, we kind of know. Uh, we have you know the basic technologies and all of that. What we just need to do is you know faster machines and better algorithms and more data and all of these other things, and that will eventually give us an AGI. Or do you think that it's going to be it requires something we don't even understand right now, like a quantum computer and how that might might lead to one or, or not. Do, are we kind of on the path or not? I don't, I don't think it will require a quantum computer. You know, maybe, maybe that would help, but I don't think that's necessary. Um, I mean, if you said, yeah, faster compute, more data, and better algorithms, I think in combination that would be sufficient. The question, I guess, is just how much better algorithms. Um, so there's great excitement, of course, in the progress that has been made in, in recent years in machine learning with deep learning and reinforcement learning. And I think the jury is still out whether basically we have most of the fundamental building blocks and, and maybe we just need some clever ways of combining what, what we have and build things on top of them or, or whether there will have to be sort of deep other conceptual breakthroughs. Um, that, 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 that is hard to anticipate. Certainly, there will have to be further dramatic algorithmic improvements to get all the way there. Um, but it might be that the further improvements will be more sort of ways of using some of the basic building blocks we have and putting them together in interesting ways to maybe build on top of deep learning structures ways to better learn and extract concepts and, and combine them in reasoning and then use that to learn language, ways to do better hierarchical planning but that it still will use some of the building blocks we already have, as, as opposed to something that kind of sweeps the table clean and, and starts over with a radical new approach. I, I, I think at least there is some credence that we are on the right path 
with, with these current advances that we're seeing. So the, to the best of my knowledge, as I try to like figure out when different people think we're going to get an AGI and, and looking at, at people who are in the industry, you know, who've written some code or something, um, I get, a, I get a range between five and 500 years, which I think is a pretty telling fact alone. But, but you undoubtedly know that there are people in the industry who um, don't think that this is a particularly useful, uh, you know, use of, of thought, resources, and cycles right now. Where, where do you think, broadly speaking, just in generalizations, where do you think people who dismiss all of this, where do they err? What, what, what are they missing? Um, well, they might err by being overconfident in their impression being correct. So it depends a little bit on what precisely it is that they believe. So if, if they believe, say, that there is basically zero chance that we will have this in the next several hundred years, then I think they're just overconfident. This is not the kind of thing that humans have a great track record of predicting what technological advances are or are not possible over century timescales. And so it would be radical overconfidence to do that. Also, it would be in disagreement with the median opinion among their uh, expert peers. We did some um, opinion surveys of world's leading machine learning experts a couple of years ago. Um, and one of the questions we asked was, by which year do you think there is a 50% probability that we will have high-level or human-level machine intelligence defined as AI that can do everything that humans can do. And the median answer to that was 2040 or 2050, depending on which group of experts we asked. Now, these are subjective opinions. Of course, there is no sort of rigorous data set from which you can like, prove statistically that that's the correct estimate. But it does show, I think, that the notion that this could happen in this century, indeed, by mid-century, and indeed in the lifetime of a lot of people listening to this program, is not some outlandish opinion that nobody actually knows this stuff believes. But if, on the contrary, it's sort of the median opinion among leading researchers. Um, but of course, there's great uncertainty on this. So it could take a lot longer. Um, it could also happen sooner. And we just need to learn to think in terms of probability distributions, credence distributions over a wide range of possible arrival dates. So... Even absent at AGI, uh, even in the, in the intermediate time before we have one, what's your prognosis about the number one fear people have about artificial intelligence, which is its impact on jobs and employment and all of that? What do you think on that? The goal is full unemployment. Ultimately, what you want are systems that can do everything that humans can do uh, so that we don't have to do it. Um, and I think that that will create two challenges. One is the economic challenge of how, how do people have a livelihood. Right now, a lot of people are dependent on wage income, and so they would need some other source of income instead, either from capital or from social redistribution. And fortunately, I think that in, in, in that kind of scenario where AI really achieves intelligence, it's going to create a tremendous economic boom. And so the overall size of the pie would grow enormously. So it should be relatively feasible, given political will, to even by redistributing a small part of that through universal basic income or other means, make sure that everybody could have high levels of prosperity. Now, 
that then leaves the second problem, which is meaning. So at the moment, a lot of people think that their self-worth, their dignity, is tied up with their roles as economically productive citizens, as breadwinners to the family. That, that would have to change. The education system would have to change to train people to find meaning in leisure, to develop hobbies and interests. Uh, the art of conversation, like interest in, in music, in hobbies, uh, in all kinds of things. Um, and to, to learn to do things for their own sake because they are valuable and meaningful rather than as a, as a means to getting money to do something else. And, and I think that is definitely possible. There are groups who have lived in that condition historically, aristocrats in the UK, for example, um, thought it was demeaning to have to work for a living. It was almost like prostituting yourself, um, like you had to sell your labor. Um, and uh, the high status thing was not to have to work. Today we're in this weird situation where the highest status people are the ones who work the most. It's like the entrepreneurs and CEOs who, who work um, 80 hour weeks. Um, but that could change, but it would require a cultural transition. Finally, um, you know, your book, Superintelligence, is arguably, well, even one, one of the most influential books on the topic, you know, ever written. And you've taken it upon yourself to, um, to kind of sound this alarm and, and say we need to think seriously about this and we need to put in safeguards and all of that. Can you close with uh, maybe a path that you, that a, w- a way we maybe get through it and things work out really well for humanity and and, um, you know, and they live happily ever after. Yeah, so I think, I mean, since, since, since the book came out in the last couple of years, there has been a big shift, actually, both in the global conversation around these topics and also in technical research now starting to be carried out on this alignment problem, on the problem of finding scalable control methods that could be used for very, very advanced artificial agents. And so there are a number of research groups bringing up. We are doing some of that technical research here, there are groups in Berkeley where we are having regular research seminars with DeepMind. And so, so that's encouraging. Um, and hopefully the problem will turn out not to be too hard. In that case, I think what this AI transition does is really unlock a whole new level. It, it kind of enables human civilization to transition from the current human condition to some very different condition. It, condition of technological maturity, maybe a post-human condition where our descendants can colonize the universe, build millions of flourishing civilizations of superhuman minds that live for billions of years in states of bliss and ecstasy, exploring spaces of experience and modes of being and interaction with one another and creative activities that are maybe literally beyond the human brain's ability to imagine. And I just think that in this vast space of possibilities, there are some modes of being that would be extremely valuable. Uh, It's like a giant, a giant stadium or a cathedral where where we are like a little child crouching in one corner. And that's, that's this, this space of possible modes of beings that are accessible to a biological human organism, given our current conditions. It's just a small, small fraction of all the, the possibilities that exist that are currently close to us, but that we could start to unlock once we figure out how to create these artificial intellects and artificial minds that could then help us. Um, and so with enough wisdom and a little bit of luck there, I think the future could be uh, wonderful, literally beyond our ability to, to, to dream. All right. Well, you keep working on making it that way. <laughs> and I, I thank you so much for your time, Nick. And you, um, 
Anytime you want to come back and continue the conversation, you're more than welcome. Super. Thank you. I would like to thank the sponsor of this episode, Argo Design. Argo is a product design consultancy, a growth partner to entrepreneurs, and an incubator of new experiences. Argo works with clients who share one common trait, the drive to create something innovative and valuable. Schedule a consultation or studio visit at Argo. Just email info at argodesign.com.